the History Show with Mars Duncan. Good evening on this week's programme. The Burning of Cork, a tale of arson, looting and murder. We'll hear from historian Michael Lenehan on why the city was set ablaze on that infamous night a century ago. Also, Holocaust survivor Tommy Reichenthal recalls his wartime experiences in the Bergen-Belsen concentration camp in Germany. Plus, we'll investigate the disappearance of big band leader Glenn Miller in 1944. To begin this evening, we're going to remember December 59 and a tragic incident that has been immortalised in song. 61 years ago this week, this tragedy occurred during a lifeboat rescue mission in St Andrews Bay on the east coast of Scotland. Colin Flynn has the story behind the lifeboat Mona. Remember December 59 The howling winds and the driving rain Remember the gallant men who drowned It was 1959 in December, and I was feeding my nine-month-old son chocolate pudding in Pearly, Surrey. That's American folk singer and songwriter Peggy Seeger, sister of the late Pete Seeger. She was living in Surrey in the UK and was feeding her newborn son when she heard a newsflash on the radio about a lifeboat that had sank off the coast of Scotland. Uh, And he had chocolate pudding all over his face. And uh, we had a little radio. This is the BBC Home Service. Here is the news read by Brian Martin. And we were listening to the radio and they were talking about the lifeboat having been lost. The news was about a lifeboat called Mona, which had capsized off the coast of Dundee, claiming all eight lives on board. I was just absolutely stricken because there I was, as happy as I'd been in my life with my son and a new partner, uh, Ewan McCall, And there were eight men drowned in the North Sea. I just was completely stricken. And so I handed the feeding spoon to Ewan and just wrote the song down. It just came out. It just came out right just like that. Remember December 59 The howling winds and the driving rain Remember the gallant men who drowned on the lifeboat, Mona was her name. As Peggy put pen to paper, she was not only writing the song, she was also writing the tragedy into history by immortalising what had happened on that cold, dark and stormy night, 400 miles away in Dundee. There have been many different versions and covers of the song, but probably the most famous was by Luke Kelly and the Dubliners. Remember December 59 The howling wind and the driving rain Remember the gallant men Who drowned on the lifeboat Mona was her name The wind did blow and the sea rose up Andrews Bay, the lightship fought the sea until 
Murray, tell me about the lifeboat Mona. The lifeboat Mona was a 47-foot Watson-class lifeboat. Um, she came on station in Broughty Ferry in 1935. Up until That's Murray Brown. He's the coxswain or captain at Broth Ferry Lifeboat, and he's been on the team there for just over 30 years. Dundee was a very, very busy port, and we do have a really nasty piece of water, the Tay, down at the bottom. The North Sea can be unforgiving, and on the night of the 8th of December 1959, it certainly was. The night that she did go out, um, the weather forecast um, of that night was exceptionally severe southeasterly gale. It's just a washing machine of water. Just horrendous white water, I believe. A distress call had been sent out from the North Car Lightship which was reported adrift in St. Andrew's Bay. They thought that they were drifting. Um, They thought they'd broken an anchor and requested help at the back of two o'clock in the morning. They requested the launch of the Mona to go and rescue the the crew of it. And at around 3 a.m., the lifeboat Mona slid down the ramp and crashed into the roaring sea and started to make its way to the ship. The boat slipped at 3.13 in the morning into this horrendous, exceptionally severe southeasterly gale. And Murray, what about the eight men who were on the lifeboat that night? Who were they and where were they from? They're all volunteers. It was a little village, so a lot of them were... um, There was the Greaves, that was father and son, I think it was. Um, and they would all know each other, but they were all, you know, seamen. Some of them were fishermen in Arbroath, and or had been fishermen in Arbroath, and um, yeah, a lot of fathers, brothers, sons lost that day. And lifeboats, of course, built to endure stormy seas. But just how bad would the conditions have been on the North Sea that night? If, if you go to the beach and you watch waves. Waves have a tendency to roll in um, in sort of one direction and you can sort of judge them. Where they, these guys were going, there, were just, there would be no direction to the waves. It would just be here, there, everywhere. E- easiest way to describe it is a washing machine. So she continues on, headed for the North Car Lightship. Is there much known about what that journey was like for the boat and for the crew? The last radio message from the boat was at 4.48 a.m. Um, and they would go down the river, uh, running basically east or trying to run east till they, they sort of cleared the sand or try and clear the sandbars and then they would turn south to run down to where or try and run down to where the north car was. And somewhere in that, fusion of seas and turning right the wreck and is uh, where she capsized. It must have been a horrendous night for them and a horrendous ride down that river. They set their boat against the main The wind's so hard and the sea's so rough We'll never see land or home again when did the community of Broth Ferry realise that something had gone terribly wrong? It was actually um, a hotel worker who had gone out for a walk um, in the early hours of the morning, sort of in daylight along the beach, 
um, at Barry Budden, which is it's an army training camp. But he'd gone for a walk and he discovered the Mona Lion on her side. And what about the crew on board? Were all the bodies recovered? Seven of the guys were recovered. One guy, um, George Watson, he was never found. He's never ever been found. Five lay drowned in the cabin there. Two were washed up on the shore. Eight men died when the boat capsized and the eighth is lost forevermore. Peggy, what was it when you were feeding your newborn chocolate pudding and you heard the news of the Mona come through on the wireless that made you want to write this song? I don't know. I, I had sung about disasters, um, ones that I learned when I, in my teens because I was, I was a sponge for learning new songs. And we have a lot of disaster songs in America. Having a child kind of attaches you to the world in a new way. And for some reason, I just felt, you know, there's eight families now who, who've lost someone they love, someone they need. Uh, and someone who were, do- were doing a selfless job. The wind's so hard, the sea's so rough, we'll never see land or home again. Uh, remember the men who leave the land and the men who will never come back again. They are amazing, the people who do that, who do that. They are extraordinary people. Remember the gallant men who drowned. The loss of the eight gallant men was a huge blow to the community. Oh, I mean, um, yeah, because everybody, of the eight guys that were on the boat, everybody in Brody Ferry will have known them sort of thing. And, you know, there was father and son and stuff like that. So, yeah, devastating, devastating for Brody Ferry. Two weeks later, the city of Bradford 2 lifeboat was brought up to Brody Ferry and put on station, and 38 men signed up to be crew of that lifeboat two weeks after the loss of it. So I think it says a lot for the men of Brody Ferry. Murray Brown and his crew now continue the work today, always ready to answer the call of a distressed sailor and head out on the North Sea. And as for the lifeboat Mona itself, while it was never put back into service, and honouring an old seafaring tradition if a boat was thought to be cursed, the Mona was set on fire and burnt. The entire crew of the lifeboat Mona perished on that night, but the memory of those men and what happened will live on through the song forevermore. Remember December 59, the lifeboat Mona was her name. I liked Luke Kelly's rendition of it, by the way. I thought it was very sensitive. Five lay drowned in the cabin there. Two were washed out on the shore. Eight men died when the boat capsized, and the eighth is lost forevermore. And that must be the hardest one. The last is lost forevermore. The howling winds and driving rain. Remember the gallant men who drowned on the lifeboat Mona was her name. Remember December 59, the howling
driving rain The men who leave the land behind And the men who never see land again Remember December 59 The howling wind and the driving rain The men who leave the land behind And the men who never see land again Colin Flynn was reporting there on the story behind the lifeboat Mona, which capsized with the loss of its entire crew of eight men 61 years ago this week. If one word could be used to describe events in Ireland in 1920, that word would probably be fire. The second year of the War of Independence began with the IRA burning police barracks and income tax offices around the country, an effective weapon hitting at the heart of the British administration in Ireland. But with the arrival of the Black and Tans, and later the Auxiliaries, they too used fire as a weapon, with deadly effect. Towns and villages across Ireland were to suffer reprisals for IRA attacks, the most devastating of which happened on the night of the 11th of December, with the burning of Cork City. About half past seven or so that night, I was sitting down to tea with the rest of the family, and suddenly we were all brought to our feet by the sound of a grenade exploding somewhere outside, followed soon afterwards by two further explosions. Then, after a silence, there was shouting and shots, revolvers and rifle shots being fired outside. I ran upstairs to the bedroom window, and by the light of the gas lamp across the way and a public house, I saw a scattered body of auxiliaries racing down the road, shouting and shooting for all they were worth. This went on for quite a while until somebody took charge of them and got them into some sort of order and started a house-to-house search. The voice there from the RTE Radio archives of an unnamed civilian who witnessed this event describing how the night began in the 1960 RTE Radio documentary on the burning of Cork. Now, this act was not simply a knee-jerk reaction to an IRA ambush, as we will hear. Cork City had been in the sights of the Crown Forces for some time. Joining me this evening to talk a little bit more about this momentous and terrifying event is historian and author Michael Lenehan. Michael, you're very welcome indeed to The History Show. Thank you very much. Now, that night was the culmination, in a sense, of a series of events that began way back in March of 1920. Describe to us what had been happening in Cork in the months leading up to the burning of the city in December. Well, I suppose the main events would have been the Republican Lord Mayors. We had three Republican Lord Mayors. The first one was Thomas McCorton, and he was murdered in March 1920 in front of his wife and children in Blackpool. The second major event would have been Terence McSweeney, who died in hunger strike in Bristol. And then we had a third uh, Republican Lord Mayor after that, and that was Donald O'Callaghan, and he spent his time on the run. This was the kind of the lead-up, like, you had a Republican Cork, and you had all these things happening at the time, and up to that point, there had been very little burning. But with the retaliation from the IRA burning RIC barracks, it started with the burning of Sinn Féin clubs in the city itself by the Black and Tans and the Auxiliaries. Fire was being used as a weapon of war. 
What about businesses? Were businesses being burnt? How were businesses, because there was a war going on anyway, how were they coping on a daily basis? They were, they were kind of getting on with it because they had to, otherwise they'd have been closed. Uh, but we, if people came into town, we say into Patrick Street, they would invariably have been stopped by the uh, black and tans or the auxiliaries. And the first thing that they do, they search people. And when they search people, invariably uh, money was stolen, jewellery was stolen from people, watches were taken, people were intimidated. So that was a major problem for businesses in the city centre at the time. We also have reports of, at, at later stages in the campaign, of sniping going on from buildings in the city, uh, sniping at the Black and Tans. There's reports of grenades being thrown down streets as well and people being killed, IRM in particular. So it wasn't the inviting place that you would expect it to be. We see that as well from some images that we see. I mean, if you see an image there of Cork in 1920 looking at Patrick's Bridge, you can very well see uh, armoured cars going over Patrick's Bridge. And that, that was not the norm in, in many cities, certainly not in Britain. Now, obviously, November 1920 was a crucial month in the War of Independence. You had Bloody Sunday in Dublin. And a week or so after that, there was the Kilmichael ambush in which uh, 17 auxiliaries were killed by Tom Barry's brigade. What's the significance of Kilmichael for the burning of Cork, which didn't actually come for a couple of weeks after that? I suppose the significance of Kilmichael initially was the fact that the auxiliaries were considered an invincible force. They were officers, they were armed to the teeth, they were very highly trained. These were not drunken louts as some people have kind of made them out to be. Uh, the number that were killed is insignificant when we look at the total uh, military presence in Ireland at the time. But what was important was it was the first time they were taken on and they were wiped out totally at Kilmichael. And that was to have a major significance for Cork. The escalation then of burning in the city, it kind of went a bit stratospheric, really. Was there a feeling in Cork that a big reprisal was coming, not just piecemeal burnings of premises? If we look at the dateline of the fires and the way you can see the escalation, and it started initially with Sinn Féin clubs, GA clubs, but after Kilmichael, the Irish Transport and General Workers' Union Hall at Camden Quay was totally destroyed. Uh, the firemen went out to fire and they were fired upon. They tried a second time and they were fired at again. This is the first time that we'd see a deliberate attempt on a building outside uh, an actual Republican building and firemen are fired on to prevent the fires being put out and both buildings either side were also destroyed. That just gives you some indication. Premises as well on Patrick Street were also attacked. Uh, one in particular, we know the reason, that was the Blackthorn House. But there was two other ones, and that was the American Shoe Company in Cattles. And they were also set in fire. That was probably because they were either side of that building, you know. And what was the actual trigger that led to the burning of Cork? Was it the ambush at Dillon's Cross, the IRA ambush at Dillon's Cross? Definitely, that was the catalyst. But if it hadn't been Dylan's Cross looking at the history of what was happening and the build-up to it, anything could have really happened. But the fact that the auxiliaries were attacked by the uh, volunteers, 
in the very same manner. That's what's important as well. They used the very same tactics as Tom Barry had done. One of them had stepped out onto the road in the trench coat. The lorries had slowed down because they were nearing a corner. There was rifle fire from the wall. Bombs were thrown into the back of the trucks. One auxiliary was killed, uh, Spencer Chapman, and 12 others were very badly uh, wounded. So um, they must have felt their position was quite weak when like, this could actually happen to them. And this was only a couple of hundred yards from Victoria Barracks, the, the military barracks in the city. And the area around Dillon's Cross, I think, was the first to suffer, wasn't it? They were the first to suffer. There's some terrible reports like, about how they treated people. They pulled people out of their houses. Some people tried to get out their furniture and they were prevented. There was one instance where one man had 30 uh, chickens and the chickens were actually killed and thrown into a bonfire. Uh, several houses in the area were burned and this was the start of the, uh, the this orgy of destruction. And what happened then with the Delaney brothers, uh, who were members of a local Republican family? Yeah, they were a Republican family, but they had no hand, act or part in the actual ambush itself. But unfortunately, there's a few theories about what happened there. It's believed that possibly ammunition had been buried in, the, in, in their farm and... One of the ambushers apparently had let, dropped a hat and bloodhounds were used and that led them to the Delaney farm in Dublin Hill. The two brothers were actually in bed. There was a knock on the door. The Augsies were left in and uh, they were looking for Jeremiah and Cornelius. They went upstairs and basically shot the two of them in, the, in their beds. So what was it then that prompted the auxiliaries to exact revenge, not just in the area around around uh, Dillon's Cross or around the barracks, but to turn their attention then to the city of Cork? What happened? Where did the fire start? Why did they start? Well, it's something that's very hard to kind of fathom because a lot of the premises that were actually destroyed were loyalists. Because we see pictures of Cork City and a lot of people say Cork was a loyalist city. But certain sections of Patrick Street would have had Union Jacks uh, flying from their premises. Grants, Alexander Grants, for instance, a large department store, certainly wouldn't have been a, a Republican shop. The next shop to be set in fire would have been Cash's, uh, followed quickly by Munster Arcade. These were the main department stores in the city at the time and they had no tie certainly to any republican movement it looks as well as if like as the night went on certainly there was um there was more and more drink consumed by the auxiliaries and things were getting more and more out of control and there was looting taking place who was doing the looting was it the auxiliaries or um was it local people no, it was, it, there was very few local people. The thing is, if, if local people were out at that hour, this was during the curfew, because before the fire started, uh, at nine o'clock in the city, people were uh, made go into their buildings because shots were fired to clear the streets. So something it was inevitably going to happen. Uh, and it, it happened then with the firing of the buildings on Patrick Street. Now, you're talking about people being indoors because of curfew and that was also a huge problem because a number of people lived above the shop as it were they they lived above the businesses when the fires started how did they how did they get out how was it that nobody died nobody was killed 
It's an absolute miracle that nobody was killed on the night apart from the Delaney brothers in the city itself. Because above all these department stores, you had a lot of apprentices living overhead. We certainly have instances where, where between 15 and 20 people were living overhead. And again, this is one of the reasons we have such good uh, witness testimony. There was a Mrs Gaffney in particular in Munster Arcade. She gave a first-hand account of how she heard the hoarding being pulled from the, the front of the building and the smashing of glass. That was something that was uh, common to all the buildings that were entered at the time. And they were lucky to escape with their lives. They shouted out from the top, can we come down? And the auxiliary said, we're not sure about the men, but uh, you can come down. And when they did come down and went to the corner of Cook Street, they, they were fired at. So because the whole thing had got out of control to that extent and that people were fired upon, it's just a pure miracle that nobody was actually killed. Now, obviously, the fire brigade came to do their job. The firemen did their best to do their job, but they weren't allowed to, were they? Oh, certainly not. Uh, the greatest success that the fire brigade had in the initial fires was Grant's department store. They couldn't save the store, but what they did actually do was they, they used their appliances, their hoses and the water to prevent the fire spreading to the English market because that market is made totally of timber and if it went up, the, the whole thing would have been gone right down into the Grand Parade itself. And later on then, when they did tackle the fires in Cash's and the Munster Arcade, their hoses were driven over to prevent the water going through. The hoses were bayoneted and it got worse when the firemen were fired upon and some of the firemen were wounded. One was wounded in the nose, another was wounded in the hand, and they were taken to the North Infirmary Hospital with their injuries. As we'll hear now, we're going to hear now from a fireman who was present at the time, just what it was like to be there and the dangers they faced, not just from the fires, but also from the Crown forces, as Michael described. Well, when we got into Patrick Street, we were useless. They were cutting the hoses, and they were firing all around them. There was one man... He was going up on top of Cassius, on the ladder. He was ordered down by a black intent with a bomb in his hand. They were out of fire, and pleased to that. He was told either to get this or get down. And that meant that that fire went on. It was worse than if a fellow was outside in Flanders or on any other battlefield. And in this clip from the RTE archives, a post office worker describes the devastation he witnessed on Patrick Street. I was in duty uh, the night of the fire. I'm the GPO. I came off duty about 11 o'clock, walked up Winthrop Street and came onto Patrick Street, which was covered in uh, water flowing everywhere, and uh, firemen rushing all over the place with hoses to try and stop the fire. The fire was raging then. There were a few scattered people about. That was Aldo. But black and tens everywhere, and they're racing about, and they're looting the shops. Well, they were darting in and out of houses about. And uh, as far as I saw, they were ripping the hoses because water was flowing everywhere about and the firemen was doing the best they could against all kinds of odds. Michael, from those descriptions, we do get a sense of the level of destruction. What was the reaction from Captain Myers when he arrived with his firemen from Dublin? Well, he actually couldn't believe because there, there was a special train sent from Dublin with the latest fire engine, actually, because the, the firemen faced an almost impossible task. But what he said is that he came through a sea of darkness and he came out in a sea of flame. 
And he didn't believe at that stage, that was Monday the 13th, that the city could be saved. So the fires were still blazing at that stage. And he also states that Cork was worse if you compare O'Connell Street and Abbey Street and the adjoining streets in 1916. So we have a direct comparison with the destruction of 1916 in Dublin. And that gives a good indication to people of the amount of damage that was done. And City Hall, which had so long been in the sights of the Crown Forces, finally succumbed to their efforts that night. In this clip, we're going to hear from a gas man describing what he witnessed. I went down Merchant Street and by the lights of the fire. Of course, there was no other light to see. So as I was going down Merchant Street, I happened to go down halfway and I met one of my comrades. So see, where are you going? So I said, I'm going down to the City Hall. So see, there's no City Hall there. See, it's burning down. So we had a bit of a chat and he was telling me his experience about he was held up by the one of the tens and told to hop it as quick as he could. And so we came back the same way and curiosity, I could see just in front of me down Paddock Street, a few firemen in the, with their hoses in the, hosing the fire, so they might as well be <laughs> throwing water into the, into the lee. Michael, how long did the city actually burn for? But I suppose it was a long time before they got the fires under control. The first thing that actually had to be done was the gas had to be turned off. Because if the gas had been left out, the whole city could literally have been, could have blown up. Uh, the extent of the damage was so great that it was five acres of property. There's different estimates as regards the unemployed. The low estimate is about 2,000, but it's as high as 6,000. And the compensation claims kind of vary from 3 to 6 million which is, is probably two or three hundred million today. So that just gives you some idea. Now, there were efforts to find out or to question who was responsible for the burnings. What were the findings of the inquiries into the burning of Cork City? Well, the inquiry was carried out by the military, so it was going to be skewed totally to one side. But the one thing the military wanted to do was to exonerate themselves of any blame, because... The army uh, directly, they, they certainly weren't responsible and um, they wanted to, to find out, but they didn't in the finish. When the report came out, it, it just wasn't published. This was the Strickland report and it lays the blame squarely on the RIC, the Black and Tans and the Auxiliaries at the time. What's interesting about that report is um, Lloyd George and Churchill prevented it from being published at the time because it was a total embarrassment uh, for the British that a city under their control uh, would catch fire and their own forces were responsible for doing it. It was 1998 that that report was released in queue to National Archive but nobody knew of its existence. On a related note, the... Roman Catholic Bishop of Cork at the time, Daniel Cahillan, did not exactly cover himself in glory. What was his response to the burning of the city? It's interesting because as far as back to 14th of March, he denounced the volunteers from the pulpit. And immediately after the fire, he put the, the blame squarely on the Dillon's Cross ambush which caused widespread resentment and the the corporation criticised it, openly saying that whilst the people of Cork suffered, not a single word of protest was uttered by the bishop after the city had been decimated. So they said he had added insult to injury at the time. And this excommunication was to have a kind of a grave impact on the volunteers' morale, because these were very um, religious men. And 
there was another thing happened and that was the um, Christmas Eve the printing press of the examiner offices in Patrick Street were destroyed because they had printed the decree of excommunication and how did people then subsequently in, in the years afterwards how did they react to Bishop Cahillon well there was a kind of a counterbalance to Bishop Cahillon and you were the likes of the Capuchins we say Father Dominic Father Albert people like that who had supported the 1916 Rising, and they had said to uh, members of the IRA that they were fighting for their country and that they would be totally exonerated and that the decree of excommunication wouldn't concern them. So that was a kind of a counterbalance uh, to the efforts of the bishop. Uh, We're going to have to leave it there, Michael. Thank you very much indeed for talking to us about that extraordinary night uh, in Cork, the burning of the city of Cork, which took place 100 years ago this week. Cork Burning is the name of the book by my guest, Michael Lenehan, about this pivotal event in the War of Independence, and it's published by Mercier Press. Michael, many thanks for joining us on the History Show this evening. Thanks, Michael. Thank you very much for having me on. After the break, we'll be hearing from Holocaust survivor Tommy Reichenthal. Welcome back. Tommy Reichenthal moved to Ireland in the late 1950s. For decades, he never spoke of the trauma of his childhood years during the Holocaust era. Since first speaking openly about it in 2004, he has tirelessly campaigned, visiting schools and clubs and conferences so that the victims of the Holocaust will not be forgotten and that young people understand the importance of tolerance. Earlier, Tommy spoke to our reporter, Connor Sweetman. All the Gestapo, they wore these long leather coat and they had a swastika on their left arm and hat and Polish boot. So the population knew, out of everybody they knew, who was Gestapo. That, that's how they dressed, you know. Tommy Reichenthal has lived in Ireland for over 60 years now. For most of that time, though, he has never spoken about his experiences during the Second World War. I started to speak for the first time about the Holocaust. It was in 2004. And the people, when they suddenly began to read and was interviewed by newspaper, television, radio, and suddenly they all heard all these things that, my God, you're here with us for... Years and years, and we never knew what... I never spoke to anybody about. Tommy was born in 1935 in Slovakia, then part of Czechoslovakia. Among his earliest memories are being told that he had to wear a yellow star to identify him as a Jew, and of being forced to leave the school in his native village because of his religion. At the age of nine, he and his brother were arrested in a shop in Bratislava. They come to my brother and they ask him, you are a Jew? We had false paper at the time, and the name was Vida. It was a typical Slovak name, like Murphy or Connor would be Irish name. Vida was a very Slovak name. So he said, no, I'm, uh, my name is Miklos Vida. I, I'm not Jewish. We thought the name would save us, you know. But the next thing, they were beating him up because he didn't admit that he was Jewish. But my brother was at the time nearly 13 year old and uh, I was nine year old at the time. And I sat beside, so they turned around to me 
I said, but you, you Jewish. I said, no, my name is Thomas Vida, you know. I'm not Jewish. And the next thing, they were beating me. And my brother was always very protective of me. Of course, I was crying, I was hurting. And my brother just jumped out and said, please don't beat my brother. We are Jewish. And uh, we were taken then uh, to this shop, and there we saw the 13 of our family were arrested on that day. It was on the 2nd of November 1944 that we were called to this roll call. Seven went to the right and six of us, we went to the left. Tommy was deported to the Bergen-Belsen concentration camp along with his mother, brother, grandmother, aunt and cousin. I remember when we said goodbye to each other. I mean, it all happened very quickly. It was very cruel. We just waved and said, when all is over, we will be reunited. Everything will be all right. When we said goodbye to them, when we waved to them, that was the last time we saw them. Our life practically changed from one minute to another minute, you know. Here we were standing as civilised people. Next minute we were like animals, you know. Tommy remembers these events vividly, but he experienced them through the eyes of a child. He still held on to some of that childhood innocence, not yet fully aware of the gravity of the situation at the notorious camp. So the camp was divided in several parts, and there was the men camp and there was a woman camp. When we arrived, we saw the skeleton walking around, shaved head in a striped uniform, and they walked uh, aimlessly. Many times they just fell down. And we as children, we used to play outside, and we would watch, we learned that when they fell down, Some of them got up, but most of them never got up. They died where they fell. Uh, Where we had a sort of a a playground, we had sort of a green area where we used to chase each other and play game like cops and Indians, but we used to play the Jews and the Germans, you know, and of course the Jews always won the war, you know, but uh, suddenly we saw a little pile of corpses uh, in our playground, you know, and we continued to play among these corpses. We used to play hide and seek, and we used to hide behind pile of corpses, and these corpses were decomposing and rotting away. So you can imagine the sight, the stench around us. But we we got used to that, you know. I don't know. Uh, We ran around and we smiled and we, we were children. But the adult, I mean, can you imagine watching this? Uh, My mother and aunt, we are playing among dead bodies, you know. A month before the camp was liberated in April of 1945, tragedy struck Tommy's family when his grandmother died. 
So that was on the 7th of March, 1945. I remember that morning I woke up and I saw my mother and my aunt, they were crying, and I asked, what, what happened, why are you crying? And they told me my grandmother passed away. And that morning, this, uh, what we called the Zonderkommando, these were the people that used to handle the corpses, so they come to the room, and they stripped my grandmother. She was like a little baby, just skin and bone. Really, the skin was just hung from her. And we were sitting there, and one picked her by the leg, one by the hand. She was thrown into the cart. They had these carts with two wheels. And then she was wheeled outside and thrown on the car, pile of corpses outside. The day arrived, it was 15th of April, 1945, afternoon, when we heard this rumbling coming. There were jeeps and lorries and tanks coming through, and soldiers were shouting, this is the British Army, you are being liberated. We didn't even know what liberated mean, but we knew we were free. He later found out that 35 members of his extended family had been murdered. Since first speaking about his harrowing experiences in 2004, he's made it his mission to share his story with as many people as possible, believing he owes it to the victims of the Holocaust. It was a sort of a relief in the end, you know, because it was back of my head all the time. But it was there, you know, I didn't want to speak about it when there was any documentary on the television. I just switched it over, you know. I just wanted to forget it, you know. But then it developed in me. I said, I'm one of the last witnesses to this. Anybody younger than me couldn't remember. Anybody older than me is passing away. So I have to speak, I, I, it, it's important. And that's what happened to us. So it stays with me and it will stay with me till I will be gone, you know. So it's a memory that I will never forget. The voice there of Tommy Reichenthal. He was talking to our reporter Connor Sweetman about his wartime experiences and why he decided to share his story with the world. We're going to take a quick break now. We'll be back after these. Welcome back. During World War II, big band music played a major role in lifting the morale of American soldiers. Glenn Miller, one of the most famous and popular entertainers of his day, was a commissioned officer in the US Army. His job was to entertain the troops. It was 76 years ago this week that Miller was reported missing in action. Lorcan Clancy found out more. When Glenn Miller enlisted in the US Army in 1942, he was at the height of his career. His orchestra played to huge crowds and his records were bestsellers. Miller formed the orchestra in 1937, but it didn't take off right away. The big band scene was competitive, and he realised that he needed a unique sound to distinguish himself from his contemporaries. In 
Miller reconfigured the orchestra around a new core set of musicians and developed the recognisable style that set his band apart. A clarinet and a tenor sax would play the main melody, while three other saxophones would accompany them in close harmony. His 1939 tune Moonlight Serenade is one of the best examples of the Miller sound and he adopted it as his signature song. From 1939 to 1942, Glenn Miller and his band featured three times a week on national radio in a series sponsored by Chesterfield Cigarettes. Christmas Eve, Moonlight Serenade and Chesterfield time with Glenn Miller and he really has a stocking full of tunes. It's the night before Christmas and all through the band we're singing and ringing and rocking the stand. Trumpets are blaring and bursting with pride. The Chesterfield smokers are satisfied. Even before the United States entered the war, the patriotic Miller would regularly salute Army servicemen during his live radio broadcasts. Tonight the words and music pay tribute to the Army Air Force's training command boys stationed up at Pratt & Whitney Engine School, Hartford, Connecticut. So here's to you fellas. When Miller enlisted in the Army, it was front page news. At age 38, he was too old to be drafted and he was walking away from the lucrative big band business at the peak of his popularity. He devoted himself to reorganising the army band. His music was popular among the troops, although some officers weren't happy with the modern, jazzy take on military marches. With the Army Air Force Band, Miller played at patriotic rallies and broadcast a weekly radio show to shore up support for the war effort. From the United States of America to the other United Nations of the world, Uncle Sam presents... Here's Captain Glenn Miller. Thank you, Lieutenant Don Briggs, and hello, everybody. In late 1943, the band shipped out to England to perform for the troops. In less than a year, the Glenn Miller Army Air Force Band played over 800 shows. On a cold and foggy afternoon in December 1944, Miller boarded a private aircraft bound for Paris to make arrangements for the Army Band's first performance there. The plane disappeared into the fog and was never seen again. Major Glenn Miller, a well-known American band leader, is reported missing. He left England by air for Paris nine days ago. Because his plane disappeared without a trace, there were many wild theories about what happened to Glenn Miller. Some said that his plane was accidentally shot down by a British bomber. Others spread the rumour that he was killed in a fistfight at a Parisian brothel, which was hushed up by the US military to preserve morale. Recent research has shown that the plane's engine had a type of carburetor known to be defective in cold weather, 
A likely explanation is that it iced up as temperatures dropped below freezing, causing the plane to crash into the ocean. On the 24th of September 1942, two weeks before he joined the army, Glenn Miller and his civilian band played the last show of their national radio series. It was the orchestra's final concert under Miller's direction, and he took the opportunity to bid farewell to the listeners at home. Naturally, we're very reluctant to give up our moonlight serenades after such a pleasant association with Chesterfield for such a long time. But since I got a date with Uncle Sam coming up, it makes me feel a little sad to leave this wonderful gang of boys in the band and all our friends listening. But there's a lot of swell guys in the outfit I'm going in, and maybe all of us can get together again after this thing is over. In the meantime, we'll say goodbye the best way we know how. The story there of the military career of Glenn Miller, who disappeared without trace at the age of 40 in December of 1944. That's all we've time for on this evening's programme. Details of all our items, as well as podcasts, are available on our website, rte.ie forward slash history show. Our researcher is Liz Gillis. The History Show is a Pegasus production for RTE. For now, from me, Miles Dungan, and producer Loken Clancy, goodbye and thanks for listening.